Paul has been telling us about the story of God and how God is a healing God. God reorders that which is disorderly, that which is broken, God fixes. That which is sick, he heals. That which is blind, he gives sight to. That which is in chaos, he reorders it so that there's life. This is what God does. This is the good news. In other words, the opposite of it would be God's apathetic. And the whole good message, the good news of the gospel is that God is not apathetic, nor is he ticked off. He's not angry. Uh, he's not how sometimes he gets depicted as sort of an angry, frustrated um, landlord over a building and you're you know, three years late on paying your rent. So you're always living in this status of where do I stand with the landlord? Oh, that's right. He wants to kill me. That's not who God is. And what Paul is basically saying is that the reason why we know this is because God has come into this world. God did not leave this world. He didn't skip over this world. He didn't just simply send a messenger into this world, though he did that. But even greater than that, God literally moved to this world and lived. He moved into the neighborhood that was broken and dilapidated and messed up and in dire need of help. This is what the gospel is, that God came into this world. It's what we just celebrated with regard to Christ's birth. And this is why it's really good news, that we have this God that doesn't run from our pain, run from our hardship, run from that which we feel uh, so uh, with, deep within our heart of oftentimes feeling lost or filled with anxiety. But we have a God that knows exactly what we're going through because he's been through it himself. And so that's why he can offer help and strength and at the same time be compassionate to us in the midst of our circumstances. And so what Paul is basically saying is that God has come into this world and reordered things. And one of the first evidences, the first ways by which we know that God is working is because of this thing that Paul introduces to us earlier on in the book of Ephesians, this thing called the church. And Paul basically is, breaks out in praise and celebration because of this thing called the church. Now, most of us, when we think of church, we tend to think of church as being the building you go to or a group of people you got to sit around with next to, next to for an hour, hour and a half, depending on the service time. Um, and we tend to think of churches like that. But the reality is what, the way church comes to Paul's mind is this community. It's a community of people of all different walks of life, all different backgrounds, and in a lot of ways, in a very standard or traditional type of a fashion, these people under normal circumstances would not have anything to do with each other. In other words, they might even be actually enemies of one another, but in this thing called the church, they're not fighting, they're not bickering, they're not out to kill each other, they're actually learning to love and forgive. And when one has a need, they're selling their vehicle to raise some money to go help them. And when one has sickness they're bringing food over or when someone has kids that need to be babysat they're like asking can we watch your kids so you and your spouse can go on a date and go have some time with each other that's what the church does or some that are feeling broken or wounded they come alongside and say how can we pray for you how can we help you that's what the church does that's what the church is and paul is looking at this earlier in the book of ephesians and he's like these are signs and evidences that god has begun a good work now the book of Ephesians basically takes us on this journey of what the church is. Again, this is vastly different than the way a lot of times we tend to think of the church. Uh, it's kind of led to, in a lot of ways, our world where we tend to individualize Christianity to nothing more than kind of an experience that you and I have with God. So it's why it's one of the things that's very common in today's world, today's Christianity, I would say, especially in the West, we can say things like this. Well, I love God, but I really hate the church. One of the things that we looked at last week is that that phrase is completely foreign in the New Testament. Like the, the New Testament, the Bible doesn't know that type of concept. In fact, it's very foreign to anything that God's up to. In fact, I even mentioned, mentioned last week, kind of gave a little bit of an analogy. It'd be like if someone came to me and they're like, hey, Pastor Brian, I like you. You're awesome. But I don't really like your wife. I don't like your children. Like that's deeply offensive and that's painful. It's an insult, and it's in a lot of ways the same idea that is, is very common within the church today in today's world. It's like, I love God, love Jesus, don't love his church. The church is Jesus' bride. The church is Jesus' thing. He created it. He loves it, and he's bringing healing in the church. It's one of the reasons why we said last week that anytime the church gathers, anytime you and I get together, there will always be people that are broken, people that are hurting, people that are in need, 
people that have baggage that they're carrying, but at the same time, it should be the safe place to go so that your baggage could be picked up by others that have got strong shoulders, and it should be the place where if you are sick, others can gather around you and anoint you with oil and pray over you and pray that God would heal you or in practical means, like I mentioned earlier, if there's ways that we can come alongside and help out in very tangible, practical means, that's what the church does. It's a place of healing because it mirrors or reflects the God of healing. So what Paul is really going to continue to unpack throughout the book of Ephesians, and a lot of this is kind of introduction. If you've been with us throughout this, you're already familiar with all this. Paul is saying is that while God is up to bringing healing into this world, into the church, into our lives, there are also forces at work trying to undermine and undo everything good that God is trying to do. And what Paul says, he kind of puts a name to that, describes it as demonic or spiritual or satanic. So what we've been looking at over the past several weeks is what is commonly known in chapter 6 of the book of Ephesians as spiritual warfare. In other words, as we try to advance walking forward, living our lives, loving God, living in this thing called the church, learning to love each other, learning to forgive those who offend us, learning to say I'm sorry to those who we've offended, all of those things that are very hard to do, there are all these forces that are pushing hard against us saying, you don't owe that person apology. You're just in how you treat them because of how rude they were, or you don't owe them anything, or you don't have to be kind because they're not kind to you. There's all these forces that are trying to undermine and undo everything that God is up to doing in your life. So one of the reasons why sometimes people start out hard or strong following Jesus, and then shortly after a period of time, they tap out because it's hard. Look, the fact of the matter is, Following Jesus is not easy. It's very challenging. It's very tough. In fact, one of the reasons why Jesus describes it, he says that there is what we would call a cost to discipleship. Discipleship is basically being a mentor of Jesus, follower of Jesus. Someone that is, uh, or a mentee, I should say, a mentee of Jesus. Jesus is our mentor. All right, kind of got a little bit swapped there. But uh, we don't mentor Jesus. Jesus mentors us, disciples us. There we go. I got that right. I'm not preaching heresy anymore. So back on track. The point of the matter is, is that as we follow Jesus, it's not easy. Because Jesus' words are, are from an, another world. They come from heaven. And they contradict the typical narrative of our lives. So when Jesus says, hey, forgive your enemies, we're like, no, I want to hate my enemies. Jesus says, no, no, no. If you want to have anything of this life that I give to you, you got to learn to love your enemies. Is that easy? <laughs> like, like, that's hard. We don't want to love our enemies. We want to badmouth our enemies. We want to unfriend our enemies. We want to stir up bad rumors about our enemies, and you can go down the list. But the point of the matter is, is that Jesus says, no, 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 love your enemies. That leads to a path of life. So here's my point. Following Jesus demands a cost. So as we pay that cost, as we follow Jesus, and as we realize it's hard, um, the hardness that is a part of that path of following Jesus is what's typically called spiritual warfare because there are these forces trying to undermine and undo everything good that God has begun in your life if you're following Jesus. If, if you're not following Jesus, if you don't really love God, if the idea, the predominant ideas that kind of manage your life or govern your life, if there's no real desire in your heart that says, I really want to follow God, I really want to do what God wants, if that doesn't exist at all in any way, shape, or form in your heart, there's a pretty good chance that you're probably not a Christian. A Christian really is one that just simply says, God, I want to follow you. That doesn't mean that they're going to have moments of failure. It doesn't mean that there's not going to be moments where you realize, like, I really want to follow you, but I'm not following you right. I really want to follow you, but it's really hard. That, that is a Christian. It's hard. There's struggle. There's prices to be paid. There's a cost to be incurred. It's one of the reasons why a lot of times when people start following Jesus and begin to see how hard it is, they back down. But let me suggest something to you. A lot of times people find, start following Jesus and begin to realize it's hard, and they go back to another path of life. And the reality is, is that there is also a cost, or you can maybe say this, a counter cost. There's a, there's a counter cost to non-discipleship. So if there's a cost to follow Jesus, a cost of discipleship to pay uh, of our lives, to say no to certain things, to say yes to certain things that are really painful, say, yes, God, I will forgive, even though it's very painful for me to forgive. 
I will do that because that's what you call me to. And I trust, even though I feel I have no forgiveness in my bank account, no forgiveness capital, Jesus, you promise that you'll give me everything I need, and I trust you, you'll help me. There is a counter cost to non-discipleship. Um, our lives are, are filled with things in which we will be willing to pay prices for to follow. But in the short run, it may be cheaper, but in the long run, it brings death. Whereas following Jesus, in the short run, it may be very painful. In the long run, there's eternal life. This is what Jesus offers. So the idea of spiritual warfare is a predominant theme that Paul introduces to us. And what he wants us to be aware of is that as the pushback comes into our lives and begins to fight against us, what Paul says, I want you to resist. I want you to be able to stand strong in the face of this opposition so that rather than taking a posture of laying on your back, being completely vulnerable, you can take a posture of standing. And the idea here is one of strength, the one of alertness, as opposed to one of complete vulnerability on your back, whereby you're just completely being overtaken by the influences of destruction and corruption. So again, one of the things that we mentioned last week, if you might look at your life and be like, gosh, my, like the posture of my life is not one of standing strong, is not one of alertedness, is not one where I'm fighting this good warfare of faith and I'm living strong for Jesus. In fact, you may look at your life and kind of feel completely weak and broke and vulnerable and messed up and on your back. All I'd have to say is I'm, I'm glad you're here because if the church is really to be what the church is, then you're in the best place for that because there's people here that love you want to help you, want to help shoulder some of those burdens, if there are burdens, to help pray for you for areas in your life that you may just find yourself riddled with brokenness. That's what the church does. And that is a sign that God has broken into this world and begun to set things right. That God has begun to bring healing in this thing called the church. But there is constant pushback. So with that, as an introduction, I want to read a couple passages beginning in Ephesians chapter 6. Verses 13 and 14, I'll just read these, and you guys can listen to them, or you can turn to them, in fact, even better. Ephesians 6, verse 13 and 14. I'm going to read the first passage out of the, uh, the uh, ESV. It's the Bible I oftentimes use. And I'm also going to uh, read another passage out of the message. It's not my favorite translation. Um, it's not an accurate word-for-word translation, if you're familiar with anything like that. But I like the way he captures the thought of what I think Paul is trying to convey. So let me read this to you, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13 and 14. He says this, Take up the whole armor of God. And again, he's talking to the church that is in this battle, constantly having things go on in the life that are trying to undo the good work of uh, healing and restoration within your life. Paul's saying, uh, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. The question is, when is the evil day? Well, look, any day in which you find yourself uh, influenced by uh, desires or things that are not good. Does that make sense? So, like, when is that day? For most of us, it's like, that's now. Like, that, that, today is this evil day. Like, when is evil day? That's right now, today. This is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice in it. God's day is better than, bigger than, greater than even the evil day. This is what I think Paul is saying, is that, yes, evil days come. Yes, evil days are something that we're in the middle of. But God has not left us alone. He's given us hope and given us help. This is what he's saying. He says, then, having done all to stand, stand firm. Stand, therefore, this is what I want to focus on today, having fastened on the belt of truth. So if you want to think of it this way, what we've been looking at up until this point is the warfare of the Christian, the warfare of the Christian. What we're going to be looking at now over the next several weeks is really, if you want to think of it this way, the wardrobe of the Christian. We've looked at the warfare of the Christian. It involves uh, demonic aspects, the uh, actions of the devil, tactics of the devil, the way Paul describes it. We've kind of spent a very long time kind of looking at sort of a vast list of ways in which the devil attacks us. Now we're going to be taking a look at the wardrobe of the Christian. The idea behind the wardrobe, we'll unpack this a little bit more in just a second, is is a means to equip you in that evil day. So when that evil day comes, again, it's probably right now for many of us, when that evil day comes, rather than laying on your back vulnerable, totally subject to uh, corrupting influences, you can actually find God's strength and stand in that evil day and take upon yourself the instruments that God gives and resist. That's what God wants. He wants to help you. 
The passage out of the message says this, be prepared. You're up against far more than you can handle on your own. Take all the help that you can get, every weapon God has issued, so that when it's all over but the shouting, you'll still be on your feet. This is this last little phrase. This is why I like it, even though it's, like I said, it's totally not word for word in terms of the Greek, but he says this, truth, righteousness, peace, faith, and salvation are more than words. Learn how to apply them. I love that. I think that carries the idea of what Paul is trying to say here. Uh, all of these things that he's going to unpack for us now, they're more than just ideas. What he's saying is that learn how to uh, live them. Learn how to apply them in your life. So that's what I want to begin to take a look at today and over the next couple of weeks is really trying to ask ourselves, what are these things and how do we apply them in our life? So what we're going to take a look at today right now is really the question of the part of the armor of God that has to do with the belt or what Paul describes as the belt of truth. So first question I want to ask is really what influenced Paul's uh, armor of God teaching. So Paul introduces this strange concept of the armor of God. Where did Paul get this from? What was Paul thinking about when he said this? Well, most scholars uh, and teachers would agree that probably one, it's uh, probably influenced to some degree by Roman soldiers. Now, if you think of it this way, Paul lived in first century either Jerusalem or Antioch or some other part of the ancient world that was under what was typically known as Roman occupation. So, uh, you know, quite a bit before Paul was ever born, uh, Rome kind of swept through that entire region of Europe and the Middle East. And, uh, you know, Caesar kind of set up his government and began to uh, bring uh, Greek uh, Roman doctrine and teaching all throughout the entire region, that area. Um, but one of the ways in which they kept the peace, or what's called Pax Romana, Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, is they would basically institute or set up these Roman guards. And so they would be everywhere you would look. So I remember years ago, I actually went to El Salvador. I've uh, been there many, many times. Um, love El Salvador. But one thing that's kind of crazy is that anywhere you go in El Salvador, there's these guys all over the place, and they always have these big, massive, like, I don't know if they're machine guns or whatever they are, but they're always carrying these big machine guns. So if you go to, like, this cool little restaurant, great food, uh, you'll always see a guy out there, he's, you know, just kind of watching, making sure everything's all good, but he's got this big, massive gun. Um, it's probably not the best analogy, but the point of the matter is, is that these guys their intention is to protect, to keep the peace. In the same way, these Roman guards were kind of scattered all throughout the Roman Empire on every street corner uh, by the dozen. And so perhaps this is what Paul had in mind, was these Roman soldiers. As he's kind of writing this uh, story or writing this little letter to these Ephesian believers, he's thinking, like, put on the belt of truth. So uh, that's perhaps very clearly what he's talking about. The second thing I think that Paul was influenced by was the writing of Isaiah the prophet. Um, we won't look at some of the passages right now. We will in just a moment. But the idea is that Isaiah actually speaks of a time to come in which one will come and bring healing, obviously a reference to Messiah, Jesus, no doubt. Um, but what he does, he makes allusions to or references to things like a belt of truth, a belt, a breastplate of righteousness. And again, each of the various elements of the armor that Paul actually impacts for us, that in a lot of ways scholars think he's sort of depicting a Roman soldier, um, these are actually also elements that were actually talked about uh, Isaiah the prophet as well. So these are things I think that Paul had had in his mind when he was writing these things. So the second question I want to ask and begin to unpack a little bit further it is, um, what does it mean to be belted in truth? Because that's the real question that we really, really, uh, really want to ask, is what does it mean to actually be belted in truth, to be robed in truth, to be clothed in truth? Now, the idea of being belted in anything doesn't take a whole lot of an imagination to figure out what that is and why, all right? So if you're being belted in your car, uh, it's to provide safety so that if an accident happens, you're protected. To be belted into your pants with a nice leather belt, um, the idea behind that, at least in theory, is to keep your pants up. Um, you know, again, it can be very fashionable and so on and so forth, but the point of the matter is, is it has a very practical means as well. It's to keep everything together in the midsection so your pants don't fall down. It's so that if you're going throughout your life and your pants fall down, things can get pretty hairy pretty quick. But the point of the matter is, have a belt on and everything's all good. Same thing with a Roman soldier. Roman soldiers, oftentimes, if you saw that picture again, he's kind of got like this little skirt. So the dudes back then, they wore skirts. And so I would imagine having a skirt on, if you're going to go to battle, you want to make sure the air doesn't kind of breeze up really bad underneath the skirt. It's pretty bad, so you want to make sure you have a nice little belt on. So I would imagine it's not only fashionable, but also highly practical. So wearing a belt, what Paul, I think, is stating is that it keeps everything together. So what he's going to begin to unpack for us now 
a belt of truth is something that keeps us together. So the second question, kind of along the same lines, going into this, is knowing what kind of a belt is or thinking through what it means to have belted into something, what is the idea of truth in which he's talking about? The truth. Because this is the real element that we really need to unpack. Now, scholars have kind of debated or tried to figure out exactly what he's talking about in terms of the truth. Is he talking about truth meaning like, you know, God's word? And that God's word is this like um, unchanging type of an element. Is this what he's talking about? Um, most scholars um, would actually agree that per, later he actually addresses this because he talks about the sword of the spirit being the truth of God. So he actually describes truth in the objective sense, meaning like God speaks, uh, don't challenge it, it's God's words, God's authoritative words, so on and so forth. That actually becomes sort of an offensive type of a weapon. <clears throat> so the question that kind of naturally then arises, what does he talk about, what does he mean when he talks about truth in this particular context? Most would kind of see truth as being not just simply an objective reality of principles from out there, but the idea of how it affects your life. Another way to think of this word truth is truthfulness. So I may have completely lost some of you right now, so I'm going to try to lose you a little bit more. Um, these are a couple of things I had written down. Hopefully they make sense. Um, here's what I had written. One is that it means to have objective truth. Again, objective just means that it's, it's not how you feel about it. It's just the simple fact. This is what God says. Uh, you, don't, you don't challenge it. You don't question it. It's there. It's real. It's like uh, gravity uh, will cause you to crash through the earth. That is an objective fact. All right? You might not feel like you're being sucked down to the earth right now because you're not really thinking about it. I mean, if you jumped off of a building, you would feel like you're being sucked to the earth. All right? uh, and you'll pay for it. But the point of the matter is, Uh, objective truth in this context is that it means to have objective truth or God's principles. So the question might be, I'm I'm packing for this. Hopefully I'm not losing you, but I'll keep going. Um, Think of it this way. What what are God's principles? In other words, maybe another way to ask this question, what's on God's mind? What is God thinking? Well, the answer to that is God actually tells us what he's thinking. John chapter one, verse one, and chapter John John chapter 1, verse 14 tells us, in the beginning was the word. The word was this concept, this idea, the principles, the knowledge. In other words, what's on God's mind? Jesus. Everything that we can think of and know about who God is and what God's like, God says, I enfleshed my concepts into a person. It's Jesus. This is, this is why we love Jesus. We look at Jesus and we realize Jesus is not just some sort of like great prophet that did awesome things and he's totally sort of the counter personality to God. Jesus reveals to us what God is like. This is why we love Jesus. He draws us to the Father. We realize that he is a God that loves us and cares for us. So, it means that to have objective truth, God's principles, reshape our hearts and our minds subjectively. So again, that's what I mean by truthfulness. So think of it this way. Truthfulness is a really bad analogy, okay? And it might kind of give the bad, a bad impression, but hopefully um, you'll, you'll get, at least get the nugget of truth behind it. So think of it this way. Think of it like a disease, all right? The disease is out there, but you get exposed to that disease. Now that disease comes upon you, and now you are infected by that disease. That disease becomes a part of who you are. You are now, your body is now following the course of that disease. Like I said, it's a bad negative analogy. But if you can somehow turn it inside out, that's what it means to have God. God, this truth, this objective reality comes into your life and begins to influence you. And you begin to live that out. That is what I think he says. Put on this belt, truthfulness. Be belted in truthfulness. Another way of thinking about it is the living truth becomes the lived truth. The living truth, this objective reality, becomes this lived truth in your life. Does that make sense? You guys following along so far? Have I totally lost you? Good. Both of you. All right. I'll keep going. Thank you. Getting a little bit insecure here. Anyways, I, I want to prove to you why I think this is what I think Paul is talking about. I'm going to give you three things to think about and consider with regard to this. All right. So first of all, these are based upon particular passages 
uh, that talk about truth. So each one of these passages, I'm going to read, there's three of them, actually talk about truth, and, and, and hopefully uh, it will make sense and hopefully bring a better understanding in our minds as to what it means to be belted in truth. Why do we want to be belted in truth? Because if we're not belted in truth, we're coming undone in lies. That's exactly where some of you are at. Your lives are coming undone because lies are crushing you. God wants to set you free, wants to heal you. And the way that Paul says that God does this for the life of the believer is so that we'd be belted in truth. All right, number one, what does it mean to be belted in truth? Number one, I think it means being honest and transparent. It means being honest and transparent as opposed to deceitful, duplicitous, or opaque. That's what I think it means. So take a look at, real quick, a couple passages, Mark chapter 5. Verse 33, Mark chapter 5, verse 33, it's the story of a lady. Um, she has this flow of blood. So if you're familiar with the context of this lady and the story of her life in the first century, because she had this uh, you know, flow of blood, she basically would have been rendered uh, what's called um, unclean. Um, she would not have been welcomed to be part of sort of the social atmosphere and the climate and the culture of her day. So people who would have known about this lady's problem would have basically either on the nice scale said politely, please don't come around us, or if they were really rude, maybe even thrown rocks at her and try to chase her away from town because her uh, blood disease would have somehow, at least in the minds of the first century people, rendered them unclean. So here's the story. Jesus is walking through a crowd. By this time, Jesus' ministry has become very popular. Uh, He kind of would have been the equivalent of like a modern-day rock star Hundreds, perhaps thousands of people would have followed Jesus. So you'd imagine when Jesus comes to a town, he didn't have, you know, a sound system to preach into or to speak into, so he had to speak verbally. And depending on where he was at, depending on how great the acoustics were, Jesus would have to speak out loud, so people would crowd in. So if you can imagine in your mind the smells, the body heat, the feeling of all of these hundreds of people just gathering and crowding in Jesus Pressing in, like there is no sacred space that you personally possess in a circumstance like this. And all of a sudden, this lady has this thought in her mind. She's got the flow of blood. She shouldn't be there in the first place, but she pushes her way into the center of the crowd, not only into the center of the crowd, but all the way to the center where Jesus is. She touches the hem of his garment. She's healed. And Jesus like stops his preaching and was like, someone touched me. Now, just think about the context. That is absolutely crazy. Like, if you were one of Jesus' disciples, you'd be like, Jesus, there's dozens of people on this inner core touching you. What are you talking about? They're everywhere touching you. Jesus is like, no, no, someone touched me. Who touched me? And all of a sudden, this lady has been found out. What's she going to say? Because if she reveals herself, she has the potential of being run out of town or stoned or crushed. And here's what it says. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came to Jesus in fear and trembling, fell down before him and told him the whole truth. There's something about being in the presence of Jesus that stripped away every barrier, every fig leaf, every facade, every everything. Projection of herself is gone. Here's a question. How do you know if you've met Jesus? You can't help but be honest with him. I, I, mean, I, don't, know how, I don't know how any other way to say this, because if, if we say, I, I met Jesus, but we still live in duplicity, we still live our lives as if there's some sort of opaqueness to it, we have not met the real Jesus. We've met a Jesus maybe that we've manufactured, maybe one that we've catered, maybe one that we've edited to meet our own domesticated desires. You've not met the real God. When you meet the real God, you cannot help but know that every, every barrier we've ever put up, it's nothing but a glass window. Once you realize that, it, 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 the step between realizing that and just saying, God, here I am, it's a small one, but it's a profound one because it means I am literally 100% nothing but naked and vulnerable in front of Jesus. 
But I got good news for you because the reality is that becomes the path to life. That becomes the path to life. Most of us, we live our lives in duplicity, in lies, in deception. You realize how exhausting that is to try to keep the lie up, to try to keep the game going. Many of us, we live our whole lives doing nothing but keeping that little facade going just so that others can think it's all good. When she meets Jesus, she just comes undone and she says, I'll tell you the whole truth. So I think, first of all, it's being honest and transparent because truth in the context here is her, is connected to her honesty and transparency. The second thing is in 1 John chapter 8, verse 10. This gets a little bit more personal. gets a little bit more practical. It says this in verse 8. Now, John was one of Jesus' beloved friends and disciples. He followed Jesus. He was a disciple. He was a leader within the early church. He was what was called an apostle. So he was sent out to go take the Jesus message all around the world. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 through 10 says this, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Listen, and the truth is not in us. You get that? The, the truth is not in us. So how do we know if we are in the position or the posture whereby the truth is not in us? Well, what he says is that if we say, if we verbalize, if we believe, if we're influenced by this concept like, it's all good. I don't have any sin. I don't have any faults. I don't have any need for help. There's no rebellion in this heart. It's all good. John says, no, no, no. We are actually in a really bad place, a dire place, because we're deceived in the truth. The truth, this thing that gives life, is actually not in us. Then he says in verse 9, he says, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. So the counterpart is this. He says that if we confess our sins, this word, confess is a great word, homeologia, it means to say the same thing. So logia means uh, word or logic or, or, or statement or concept. Uh, homeo means same, obviously to say the same thing. The problem is most of our lives, we live our lives not saying the same things as God. So what we do is we, we restate things, we rephrase things. We say, you know what, it's not murder, it's just an abortion of a baby. We restate things. The reason why is because we want to soften the blow. We don't want to feel the pain of it because that word or certain words or certain concepts or certain ideas are deeply hurtful and offensive to us. So we run from those things. And instead of finding healing and wholeness and transformation in life, we find deep pain and regret and hurt. So what John says this is an unbelievable promise. I want you to listen to it again. He says, but if we confess, if we say the same thing as God does about our condition, there's hope. You know, this isn't that far off or hard to understand because if you think of it this way, um, let's say you have some issues with your body, a physical issue, and in your mind you're like, maybe it's cancer. I don't know. But you live in denial of it, right? We're, we're great at living in denial, aren't we? Um, uh, especially when we're young. The older we get, it becomes less and less uh, hard to kind of live in denial. I mean, we have other ways of masking it. But the point of the matter is, let's say, for example, you go to the doctor, and it's like, no, 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 this is gnarly. Like, we've got to operate right now. And you're like, no, I don't really want to deal with this because I don't think it's really there. I'm going to go get a second, third, and fourth opinion. And really, really, we're just trying to find something that's going to agree with you. But the point of the matter is, is that the, the, the fact is the fact, the issue is the issue, objective truth has been spoken, but now you have the opportunity of taking that objective truth and letting it influence you or change you or to live in a perennial state of deception. You live in that perennial state of deception, and at some point, cancer will multiply and do what cancer does. It will basically take over your body, and it wins. <laughs> and when it wins, you, you, you lose. Um, uh, or you can say... I believe what you say, and if, if it's this bad, and if this is the path to healing, then it begins with me getting out of my self-deceived state and saying the same thing as you, and I'll say it. That's really what John is saying. If we confess our sins and say the same things, then he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. You realize that word cleansing is really what most of us desire deep in our heart. We sense 
something's not right. We sense an inner dirtiness, an inner filth. And yet Jesus says, I can clean you. But it begins by honesty and transparency. So number one, I think what it means to be belted in truth is being honest and transparent. The second thing is being mastered by life-giving influences. Being mastered by life-giving influences. So uh, as opposed to mere opinions and appearances. I think most of us would agree that many of us, we are mastered by opinions of others or opinions of ourselves or appearances of the way that we want things to be or the way we think things to be. So let me give you an example of this before I read the passage to you. In fact, if you want to turn there real quick, Mark chapter 12, verse 14 is what we'll look at in just a second. Um, I grew up in Orange County. So I grew up in Huntington Beach. That was my, my life. And um, I, this Orange County, so if you're kind of like wondering if you don't know what Orange County is all about, um, Saturday Night Live does a really good job at portraying California, right? If you've ever seen that skit, um, it's really not too far off from being straight on point. All right, I mean, there's a little parody in there and a little uh, extremism in there. But the point of the matter is, for the most part, it's totally right on. Like, it, that's the way people tend to think. It's, just, it's a lot about appearances, how you look. So the thing, thing is that in Orange County, there's a lot of stake put upon appearances, how good you are, how good you look, what type of car you drive, what type of job you have, where you live. Is it a gated community? Is it just an open neighborhood? Uh, where, what beaches you go to? There's so much at stake with regard. So let's just say, for example, you grow up or live in a particular context, and again, it has a way to kind of infect, uh, use the word infect very strategically, to infect the rest of society. But let's say, for example, if you live according to or you yoke your mind or your thinking into this concept that says, I need to look beautiful, I need to have beautiful people that I hang out with, and I need to have a good car and have all these really good things. Let's say, for example, you can live your whole life trying to live up according to these appearances, and at some point, you will fail the system. And if you fail the system, meaning you're not good-looking, you gain an extra 15, 20 pounds, you don't have what it takes to look really good, you are not fitting in, or your friends no longer are your friends anymore, what happens now is you enter in a realm of great anxiety and stress. But let's say, for example, you have all of that. In other words, you are good-looking. You have the nice cars. You have the money. You have the resources to do everything that society and culture is saying, this is what makes life awesome. So you have all that. You live your life constantly in a state of fearing loss. You know, you, you may end up gaining that weight, or you might end up losing your job, or you might end up losing your friends, or what happens if you have other friends that come up and they look better than you? They outdo you. Now you're frustrated and angry because you are in danger of losing everything. The point that I would make is that these are death-creating influences that crush you. Whereas what we see with Jesus is that he's mastered by life-giving influences. That's what he invites us into to be mastered by. He's the word mastered strategically because the reality is all of us, we subject ourselves to something. The notion that you know, I'm not mastered by anything except my own desires is a false notion. All of us have things that influence us. Think about it this way. Anytime you turn on television, and there's always a sermon being preached. You know that? Every single day, there's multiple sermons being preached. We call them commercials. All right, and those commercials are always coming at us and saying, you've got to do this. You've got to buy this. And if you buy this, if you invest in this, you're going to look really good. You're going to lose 10 pounds. You're going to be awesome. People are going to be your best friend. Your libido is going to be really high. All of these things, they promise you. And if we invest in them, we give our hearts to them, what happens is they never really deliver. But the point of the matter is that they're not life-giving. Because either we have them for a season, we feel great, or we lose them, and we feel horrible. So Jesus, we see, on the other hand, was mastered by these life-giving influences, and he invites us to be part of that as well. Mark chapter 12, verse 14, it says, And they came to him. These are Jesus' opponents. And it says, They said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and that you care about no one's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. So the point is, is that they come. Again, they're Jesus' opponents, and they may even be speaking really flowery words to Jesus to kind of, to kind of patronizing Jesus. But the point of the matter is they observe something about Jesus, and I think it's absolutely accurate, that Jesus is not bouncing around all over the place trying to be uh, one that is floating by, based upon everybody else's uh, opinions about them. Now, most of us, I think we're really honest, that's oftentimes how we live our lives. 
we live our lives based upon how others think about us. So when people's you know, uh, public ratings about us are high, we feel awesome. When the ratings begin to sink a little bit, or people begin to say bad things about us, or we're not as like, or we do something that's not very thoughtful or very kind, whatever the case is, then we find ourselves being despised, and then we feel our lives taking upon this other influence that begins to crush us and destroy us. But what we see is, I think, putting on truth, being belted in truth, is being mastered by not the opinions of others, not appearances, not even how you think of yourself, and I would even throw in one more, not even how you feel, but by being mastered by what God has said about you. This changes everything. This literally is a game-changing reality, that if you can somehow come to grips with who and what God says about you, that actually sets you free. That's not all good news, by the way. Some of us are like, is it all good news? Am I really as awesome as I want to think that I really am? Actually, before the good news is really the bad news. In fact, some of you guys know who Tim Keller is. I'm going to paraphrase what he says, but he says something to the fact that the fact of the matter is, he says, cheer up. You are worse than you can ever even imagine. You are more rebellious, more broken, more just ruinous than you can even imagine. Even more than you can even dream of, but simultaneously, you are more loved more accepted than you can even dream. That this is the God that calls us, come to the table, eat the bread that I have to give, drink the wine that I have to offer, it will give you life. What influences you? I think that's what it means to be belted in truth. Third thing, last thing, is, I think what it means to be belted in truth is to have some form of harmonizing of what you practice with God's thoughts. Kind of like the bad analogy I gave you earlier about kind of the disease that influences you and you're kind of now taken over by it. In the same similar way, if you kind of invert that in terms of a good spin, that God's word, which is life-giving, now begins to work its way in you, through you, and beyond you into the community. So let me put it this way. Uh, A life-giving, or I should say a, a community or individuals that are belted in truth are those whose practices harmonize with God's principles as opposed to having God's principles constantly clashing with your life. So in other words, if you are someone, now let me say this, a true Christian, a person that follows Jesus, you will have moments when God says things to you, they will radically contradict your life. Okay, so just, just FYI, if you're kind of wondering like, will when I follow Jesus, everything be awesome and I'll just simply accept everything he has to say. If you're paying attention, no. In other words, there will be moments when God says things to you and they will feel deeply challenging. In the same way, when a mom takes a sucker that fell in the ground, it's got hair and nastiness on it, out of the hands of a child, the kid's like freaking out crying because the child wants nothing more than that sucker. It doesn't care about hair on it. It doesn't care about all the nastiness and germs on it. It just wants to eat it. It feels offended by mom. But does mom love? Child, does mom know more than child? Yes. In the same way, when God speaks, there's going to be moments when we feel deeply offended. But what a Christian is, is one who works through those offenses and says, I don't get it, I don't understand it, this doesn't make any conventional sense to me whatsoever, but this is what God says. Because his words are the words of life. I will robe myself, I will belt myself in that truth, and I will let it shape me. That's what a Christian is. And it's not easy. That's not an easy process. In fact, if you are walking and following Jesus closely and carefully, you'll realize that type of thing should happen in your life regularly, meaning you are constantly being um, checked by the gospel message, by the word of God. Because if it's true that God is perfect and God is light and in us is darkness, and what that means is that the light is constantly being shown in dark areas of our lives, and that should always be shocking. Because if you've ever fallen asleep and at three in the morning someone wakes you up with a flashlight in your eye, that is deeply offensive until you become accustomed to it. It may still be offensive, though. But the point of the matter is, this is what we find in this gospel, is that harmonizing what you practice with God's principles. I'm going to read a couple of passages and I'm going to wrap it up. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7, through 7, this is what it says. This is the message that we have heard from him, and we proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So listen to that passage again. God is light, and in him is no darkness 
at all. So the question often is, well, what's God like? God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Think about that. Think about how absurd that would be if we were to like apply that to ourselves. It'd be like, okay, now say that about yourself. Put your name in substitute of God. Brian is light and him is no darkness at all. That sounds absolutely ridiculous, all right? Um, Brian is darkness with an occasional flash of light every once in a while. It's not even from me. It's like lightning coming from another realm. But the reality is this is who God is. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. And here's what he goes on to say. He says, if we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet we walk in darkness, we actually lie. And here's what he says, and we do not practice the truth. That's a strange phrase. Let me tell you why it's a strange phrase. Because when we talk about truth, what do we typically associate um, in terms of embracing truth? We oftentimes say, believe the truth, right? So in a typical westernized understanding of truth, we would say, well, I, I believe the truth. And there is room in the biblical understanding or the Hebraic understanding of truth to where it's to be believed. But it's also implied to recognize that part of believing the truth involves practicing the truth. And here's what we say is that in this context is that God is light and him is no darkness at all. But if we say that we have fellowship with God, if we say that we are one with this God, and yet in reality we still walk in darkness or maintain a lifestyle that is steeped in darkness, we do not practice the truth. In other words, we are still deceived. We are still in darkness. Verse 7, he says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. This is, again, another phrase, a strange phrase where he says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, um, wouldn't we assume that if we walk in the light, after what he's just said, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, wouldn't we assume that the next phrase should be, and we have fellowship with God? Like, if we walk in the light, if God's in the light, if we walk in the light as God's in the light, we have fellowship with God. But that's not what he says. He says, if we walk in the light, in other words, if you want to prove the fact that you are not owned, mastered by darkness, the evidence of that is that you walk in the light, seeing as in the light, and you have fellowship with others. Others? How, how is, let me put it this way. We can claim to know this invisible God. But if we know, and John's going to say it this way, I'm going to kind of paraphrase it. If we claim to know this invisible God, yet hate our visible brother, other fellow human being, we actually don't know anything about God. That's what he's saying. We are actually still deceived. We are actually not belted in truth, which means we are actually on our back, vulnerable in posture, being owned by darkness brokenness. That means we're in a place. Jesus needs to heal us. Set us free. Final thing is John chapter, first John chapter two says this, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he also walked. So again, the emphasis upon this concept of truth, knowing truth, also plays into this larger concept of practicing the truth. Not just believing truth, but practicing it. Letting the truth of God, this external reality, begin to influence and inform and change our living reality. Does that make sense? So I want to finish with this final question. I'm done. So where do we find ultimately the strength to be able to do this? Now, I mentioned earlier that Paul was not only informed or probably uh, influenced by a Roman soldier, but he was also probably influenced by the writings of uh, Isaiah the prophet. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 5, we'll just read a couple passages from that. It says this. He says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots uh, shall bear fruit. So he's looking forward to what's typically called a messianic passage. In other words, it's a passage that was written uh, several hundred years before Jesus, but it was looking forward to or anticipating from a period of great darkness. In other words, when Isaiah wrote, uh, the nation was pretty messed up. There's a lot of brokenness, a lot of broken relationships. Uh, The government wasn't functioning properly. Uh, A lot of broken relationships within that governmental system. In other words, it's not too dissimilar from the world in which we live in today. But Isaiah was looking forward to a time when God would bring about healing. In other words, God's healing would then begin to come by way of what he describes as this root of Jesse, 
So, verse 5, he says this, And righteousness will be the belt of his waist, and truth the belt of his loins. There's midsection. The idea here is that one day, God would come. God would come into this world. He would send a Messiah, one, and we know the identity of this now because it's Jesus. We look back, we realize this is how God came. God brought healing, was through Jesus. That God comes not duplicitous. God comes not lying. God comes not bringing falsities. God comes bringing truth. Truth radically influenced Jesus, motivated Jesus, moved Jesus to such a degree that it's what set us free. Jesus came and he spoke truth to us. He spoke it and he showed it in love. And the greatest evidence of that is what we look at, what we call the cross. It was on the cross that we see God put on display the extent of truth and love. And we begin to realize that this is how messed up we really were and how loved we really were. The cross shows us. Because the cross is really a tragedy. When you look at the cross, you think, how can anything good come out of a murder? And why a murder? And what we see is that Jesus comes bearing upon himself our brokenness, our alienation, our sin, our unrighteousness, our lies. And he allows all of those things to do to him what they are constantly in a perennial state of doing to us. And he does that so that instead of living in a life of lie, we can have a life of truth, to be belted in that. So that rather than a posture of brokenness and constant destruction, we can be put back up on our feet and have life and be alert. And this is what Jesus does. He comes to bring healing. So if you're here, I want you to understand the lengths to which God has gone. And you're trying to figure out and wrestle in your minds, who is this God? How great is he? What has he done for us? I want you to understand the lengths to which he's gone. And we're going to respond by singing. We're going to respond by partaking of communion. So why don't we all stand? And we'll respond. If you're here this morning and there are circumstances that, are going, that you're going through in your life right now that you feel overwhelmed by, you feel as in, even if, it, if they are crushing you and pressing you down, uh, we want to pray for you. I mean, there may be people standing right next to you that can just pray for you, and that's great. I would encourage you to do that. Just turn to your neighbor. Turn to someone that maybe you know and just say, look, my, I'm not the person you thought I was. That's painful. I realize that. But that becomes a path of healing. And if you don't want to do that to your neighbor or someone that you know that's still a little bit raw or painful, we're going to have some people over up by the cross that would love to pray for you. Just go talk to them. We have communion in the back. Partake of that. We partake of that as a way of reminding ourselves of the lengths to which God has gone to bring about healing for us. He was crushed. He was broken apart so that we who are crushed and broken apart can be healed.